Before we completely jump in, I want to just make uh, a couple of real quick announcements. The first is, last week, if you were here at third service, or even possibly between second and third, we ran out of the red books. Um, If you were trying to pick up one of those Bible initiative booklets, the Genesis to Joshua book, or maybe you have someone that you want to give one to and we were out, we did a reprinting of those. And so there are some available out in the lobby and kind of spread around. You can grab some of those. We encourage you to take those. Um, You can also use the website, though, which is thebibleinitiative.com. So uh, the second is, I said this last week, but we're always going to teach on the front side of what we're about to read. And so this week's reading starts in Genesis 1-1, which is creation. Um, If you haven't, you didn't jump in maybe the first week of the year, you were out of town, whatever the case might be, uh, you haven't missed much. Uh, Psalm 119 is what we read last week, which was trying to give ourselves a vision for loving the Word and uh, a heart that longs not just to engage with the Word, but to really love the author. And so this week, we're going to start with creation. So we'll talk about creation this morning, read about it throughout the rest of the week. That'll always be our pattern. Teach on, the, teach on a topic or a section of scripture, read it uh, the week that follows. The last thing I want to do is I want to start um, this morning with a quote. And the quote's on my phone. It's the only place I could get it. Don't think less of me as I pull my phone out. I told first service this, I'll tell you too. I won't think less of you when you pull your phone out. Unless everybody does it at once. All right. Um, Beth Moore recently spoke at the Passion Conference. If you're not familiar with what that is, Passion Conference is uh, a conference that takes place just after the first of the year, every year. It's for college students, um, thousands of, of college students and their ministry leaders gather. And it's an opportunity to hear teaching and to worship alongside one another. And she had a chance to speak at the Passion Conference. And she said something to those 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds that I thought was incredibly poignant and relates to what it is that we're doing here over the course of the next year. And I wanted to share it with you this morning. Beth Moore stood before um, a group of 12,000 or so college students and said the following. She said, you will watch a generation of Christians, of your peers, of Christians, set the Bible aside in an attempt to become more like Jesus. And stunningly, it will sound completely plausible. This will be perhaps the cleverest of all the devil's schemes in your generation. That you could sacrifice truth for love's sake. And you will rise or fall based on whether or not you will sacrifice one for the other. My question for you is, will you have the courage to live in the tension of both truth and love? As a staff here at at LCF, you can absolutely guarantee that one of the commitments that we make to you, one of the things that we're passionate about is upholding the truth of Scripture, upholding the reality of who God is as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, who Jesus is as we're shown in Scripture, what the gospel is, who we are, that Scripture is our primary authority. And one of our hopes over the course of this year is that we would run to Scripture because that's where we find the author. That we would see Christ throughout the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And that we would grow as a church in our desire to live out the picture 
of Christ that we see in Scripture, and that we wouldn't try to find that or define it by any other means. We want to be a congregation. We want to be a church of people who follow Jesus. And the place where we find where uh, that is, what that looks like, how that works, is in Scripture. And that's part of the motivation for the coming year. We want people to know the Bible better. We hope that you learn and are able to grow and maybe establish a habit or a discipline of regularly engaging with Scripture on your own. But more than anything, we want to fall in love with the author. We want to see Christ at all times throughout Scripture. And we want to be a church of people who model our lives based on what Scripture teaches us about who Jesus is and how he lived and what that means for us. And so that's our hope. We're going to start that this morning by looking at creation. And so before we jump in, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll get started. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the opportunity to come and to worship you, to open your word and see you as you display yourself in creating. God, I pray this morning that you would reveal to us the truth of your power, the truth of your character. God, I pray that you would show us what it means to be created in your image. God, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts. God, that you would captivate us with a picture of who you are, who we are, who we were intended to be, and why that matters. Lord, your spirit come and do that work here in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've never built a house. Jim and Sue's recently had a house built. Jim didn't swing the hammer. Um, Suze, did you? Okay, Suze didn't swing the hammer either. But they, they recently had a house built, and of the many things I don't know about what's required to build a house, one thing I do know is that the foundation is incredibly important, and that if you get something wrong in the foundation of the house, things go wonky in other places. And you may not know that you have a foundation problem until there are two or three strange things happening elsewhere in the house that say, I think we need to look at the foundation. One of the reasons that throughout the Bible, the authors of various books inspired by the Holy Spirit point back to creation is because that's the foundation of who God is. And the foundation absolutely matters. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And there are a lot of ways you could go in a message about creation. There are probably 10 or 12 different directions that a person could choose to go in teaching about creation. You could do something kind of apologetic. You could do something that leans more scientific. Um, There are a lot of options, so I had to choose one. And so for our sake, going forward for the rest of the year, I thought it was most important for us to look at the creation account and answer three questions. What does the account of creation tell us about who God is? What does it tell us about who we were intended to be? And why does that matter? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Who's God? Who are we intended to be? Who did he create us to be? And why does that matter? So if you've got your Bible, you want to open up. Genesis 1.1, more so than anything else, I feel confident in saying that the first couple chapters of the Bible, as well as other places throughout Scripture that tell us about creation, though they give us a lot of information and even a, a kind of a look into exactly how that happened and how it worked, I think they tell us more about who God is than anything else. And so that's what I want us to see as we walk through some of uh, these verses in Genesis 1. So I'm just going to start at the beginning. In the beginning, God. One encouragement I can't give you strongly enough over the course of the year as you read Scripture is to go slowly. Don't just blitz through it. 
Because if you just go humming right past that section right there, you miss an important truth about who God is, and that's that he is eternal. In the beginning, God. He's there. He's there before anything else. Nothing created him. He, the fancy word is he is eternally self-existent. He has always existed in the form of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's always existed without need of anything else. So in the beginning, God created. He doesn't do so because he's lacking something. He doesn't do so because he needs to fill a void within himself, and so he creates something else in order to complete himself. That's not the case. He's always existed and has always existed perfectly in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Creation is an act of free will on his part. He doesn't do it in order to fulfill something within himself. He does it as a loving, free act. And he does so for a specific reason, for a specific purpose, and we'll get to that here in a few minutes. It's also important to note that he's the only thing in all of the universe that is eternal. When God went to create, there weren't some pre-existing materials sitting around that he took and fashioned into a universe. There was nothing. And then there was everything. God is the only thing that is eternal. God's the only thing that's always existed. He didn't work from some stuff that was already there and then create everything that we see today. Revelation 4.11 says it this way. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. It's also important to note that all of the Trinity is involved in creation, and Scripture tells us that the rest of the way through, that creation happens by the Father. It exists in His mind, and it's spoken from His mouth. He's the source that everything comes into existence through. But that happens by the work of the Son and the Spirit. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, He's the image of the invisible God, for by Him, that's Jesus, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Genesis 1 verse 2 tells us that the Spirit was present there at the moment of creation. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's by the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity, God, is eternal. He's the only thing that's eternal and he creates as a free act on his own. That's important. Those are important truths. The next thing we see is that he's powerful. In the beginning, God created. Throughout Genesis chapter 1, when God speaks, it happens. I don't know if you uh, own a dog, but you're standing in your living room and the dog is nowhere to be seen and you whisper the word, car. And your dog comes sprinting down to you. You say it, it comes. Same is true in creation. He says, let there be light, and light comes rushing into existence. He says, let there be animals teeming in the sea, and animals in the sea come rushing into existence. He says, let there be animals on land, and they come rushing into existence. Let there be plants, they come rushing into existence. He speaks it, it happens. He's powerful. 
And that's important for the rest of Scripture, right? If God can create everything out of nothing, is it impossible for him to do the things we see throughout the rest of Scripture? Absolutely not. Should they surprise us? Absolutely not. Is it somehow confounding that he could make a virgin pregnant? If, in fact, he's able to create everything out of nothing? No. Is it surprising that Jesus could walk on water? No. Is it surprising that he could produce the plagues that we see in Exodus? No. Why? Because he's powerful. And if he could pull off the act of creation, what is there that he wouldn't be able to do? He's eternal, and he's powerful. But he's not just powerful over creation. He's sovereign over creation. Sovereign is the theological term that just means that God has authority over all things. And you're going to see that. We're going to see that again and again throughout the Bible. But we get a, picture, a perfect picture of it here in creation. When you walk through Genesis chapter 1, and there are uh, the six days recorded there that God is creating, when he wants a thing to happen, it happens. No delay, no pause. He's got authority. When he wills it, it comes into being. He's sovereign. And he's still sovereign today. He's got a, he's got a relationship with his creation. And it's important to understand this, too. There are religions that would teach um, that God is kind of everything, that we are a part of God, that nature is a part of God, that the universe is a part of God. That's not a Christian doctrine. The Christian doctrine is that God is separate from creation, that he creates light and it comes into being separate from him. The fancy word there is transcendent. He's high above it. He's separate from his creation. And yet, the unique thing is that he's involved in it. It's separate from him, but he's involved in it. That word is imminent. He's transcendent and yet imminent. There are religions that would teach or streams of thought that would say that God created everything and then he stepped out of it. The common analogy is like a watchmaker who puts all the necessary parts into the watch, sets it into motion, and then steps out and lets it play itself out on its own. That's not a Christian doctrine either. In fact, you see immediately in Genesis chapter 2 that God is involved in his creation. He's transcendent and separate from it, but he's imminent and involved in it. Those are important truths. He's eternal. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's got authority overall. Another thing that we see is that he's a God of purpose. Each aspect of creation has a design and a purpose to it. That's who he is. He's purposeful. So when he creates oceans and mountains and rocks, he designs them and creates them for a purpose. Plants have a design and a purpose. Animals have a design and a purpose. Humans have a design and a purpose. Rest, which he creates at the beginning of chapter seven, or chapter uh, 2 on day 7, has a design and a purpose. Marriage, human relationship, has a design and a purpose. That comes in chapter 2. Some of those purposes are purely functional. And thankful, thankful, thankfully, that's the case. Food, plants, animals, they provide sustenance. That's a wonderful functional purpose. Rivers, lakes provide water. That's a wonderful functional purpose. But the larger purpose for all that God's, God creates is that it would exist for his glory. That is the purpose 
of creation. That's why he creates everything. That's also why in Genesis 1 and 2, as God is creating, he steps back repeatedly and says, it is good. Creates light and darkness. And there's light and there's darkness existing for no other purpose at that time than to bring him glory. And that's a good thing. He creates water and seas and continents and land. And he steps back and he says, oh yeah, that's good. That exists for my glory. When he creates humanity, in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, when you read about all of creation and you see the creation of humanity, he steps back and he says, it's good. It's very good. Because before sin enters the world, humanity was fulfilling its God-given purpose, which is to bring him glory. You better believe that all of creation is ultimately going to fulfill that purpose. There's a universe, or a universe, there's a galaxy or a planet within the universe that exists out there that we don't even know exists that's just orbiting around, doing its, or doing its galaxy sort of thing for the glory of God. And we might not ever discover it, we may not ever know that it exists, but it exists for the Lord's glory and testifies to who He is. On the opposite side of that, there are tiny pieces of your body that exist inside your cells that have functional purpose, like a mitochondria, it provides you energy, but it also has another purpose. It just glorifies and testifies to the brilliance of the Lord who created you. There's a rhino walking around in Africa right now, just using its giant nose horn to root around in the mud. And that testifies to the glory of God. Trees. You look out your front window in the fall, and there's a tree turned bright red and orange and yellow, and it's about to drop its leaves onto the ground. And you think to yourself, I'm going to have to rake those. (laughs) But they're going to drop to the ground to the glory of the Lord who created it. When it snows, when it's hot, when you go to a place like the Grand Canyon, or you go and you stand on the coast and stare at the vastness of the ocean and you watch those things and you get filled with this feeling of like, how is something so vast like this possible? And you get overwhelmed by the fact that, yes, there must be a creator. The same is true when you look at rocks in your yard. I'm forced to admit that the same is true when I interact with spiders who I think only exist to haunt my very existence. But the reality is they're just out there spidering around to the glory of the Lord who created them. Everything has a purpose. And that purpose is the Lord's glory. I kind of think of it like a scene in Shrek. There's a scene in the first Shrek movie where Shrek takes Donkey back to his swamp in order to show our Donkey where he lives. And they're kind of standing on this hill and they're overlooking the swamp and Donkey says something disparaging about Shrek's home. And Shrek kind of huffs and puffs and he starts off down the hill and Donkey, in an attempt to kind of restore friendship here, comes chasing after him and there's a boulder. And Donkey says, look at that boulder. That's a nice boulder. We look at stuff in the world around us at times, and we're unimpressed by it. But the Lord, quite literally, would look at something inanimate like a stick and say, 
Look at that stick. That is a nice stick. It exists to his glory. That is the purpose of all of creation. You're going to read this week in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, but also in three psalms. And those three psalms are places where the psalmist is talking about the glory of creation. And they just marvel at it. I mean, it's amazing to read how overwhelmed these writers are with creation and the way that it testifies to the glory of the Lord. He's a God of purpose. And his purpose for creating is that all of creation would testify to his glory. He's also a God of grace. And this is important. We tend to think of grace in terms of I screwed up and I sinned. And gosh, I'm really thankful that God's a God of grace and he extends that grace to me. But remember, in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, no one's screwed up yet. No one has sinned. No one has messed up. And yet God is gracious and loving the entire time because grace is giving to someone something that they didn't merit or earn, something that they haven't earned the right to. And think about what happens. Humanity's given life. We didn't do anything to deserve that. And yet we've got it. He just lovingly gives that. They're given provision. God says you can eat these things. It's just a loving and a free act. We're given rest before ever articulating being fatigued. It's just a loving act. We've got relationship with the Lord in the garden. That's what was intended to happen. And it's just a loving and a free act of His grace. Relationship with one another is an act of His grace. He's gracious. It's who He is. He's also a God of relationship. He's always existed that way. It's central to who He is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally in existence with one another. Relationship is at the core of who God is. And the only thing in the recounting of creation that God deems not good is the fact that Adam is alone. That Adam has no suitable helper. And so God creates Eve. And now humanity has relationship. Hardwired into us is a desire for that. It's part of who God is, and it becomes part of who we are. His relationship within the Trinity brings glory to himself. His relationship with his creation is to bring glory to himself. His relationship with humanity is to bring glory to himself. Our relationships with one another are to bring glory to him. Remember that last week we said that the Bible is the story of God redeeming humanity, bringing us back into relationship with him. Relationship is very important to the Lord. The next thing that we see, actually that we will see Next week, a little more clearly, but it's important to note right now, is that God has the right to command. Being the creator, he absolutely has the right to not only inform humanity about the best way to live, but to ask and command that they do so. In fact, it's loving for him to do that. Imagine buying a new bowl. And on the bottom of the bowl, the manufacturer has very lovingly and caringly informed you that this particular bowl is not dishwasher safe. Upon reading that, you know what we don't do? 
We don't say to ourselves, I cannot believe that the manufacturer would tell me that this can't go in the dishwasher. I'm putting it in there anyway. So you place it into the dishwasher and it gets somehow ruined or destroyed. And you don't think to yourself, unbelievable. They told me it shouldn't go in the dishwasher. I put it in the dishwasher. Something bad. I'm going to write an angry letter. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell the manufacturer how upset I am that they warned me not to put it in the dishwasher. And then I put it in the dishwasher and it broke. We don't do that. And yet we do it with the Lord. He has lovingly laid out for us the way that humanity best functions within the creation that he created. And yet we think to ourselves, how dare he tell me how I'm supposed to live? I'm going to go ahead and do that thing anyway. And then when we do it, and it creates pain or difficulty or challenge in our life, we think to ourselves, why would God let this happen to me? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you put the bowl in the dishwasher, and he told you not to do that. He has the right to command, and it's loving and gracious for him to do so. We'll circle back around to that in a minute. The last thing is that he's unchanging. The God we read about here in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 is the same God we read about in Exodus chapter 12, Job chapter 35, Isaiah 40. He's the same God we read about in Matthew chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Revelation 22. He's the same God we interact with today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Hebrews. He's never going to change. In fact, it'd probably be useful and helpful to take this little list, if you've taken some notes, and set it somewhere. Because as you read Scripture, these things are going to come up over and over and over again. And as you experience life, these things are going to come up over and over and over again. And they're good reminders that this is who God is and it's who He's always going to be. We also get a picture of who we are created to be, who we're intended to be. So I want to point out a couple of those. The first is that you were created with purpose. And that matters. It matters a lot. You were created with a purpose to glorify the Lord. We said that that's the case for all of humanity, or for all of creation. But you were created intentionally and specifically with purpose. Which means that no matter what's happening in your life right now, no matter what's happened in your life in the past, no matter what may come to your life in the future, no matter how lonely you may feel at any time, or sad, or what challenges may arise, no matter how tempted you are to think that my life doesn't matter to anyone, it matters immensely to God. You are of inestimable importance to the Lord. You are meaningful and significant, no matter what the world may tell you or what you may be tempted to think. When you feel your lowest, when things are going their absolute worst, when you're convinced that no one's watching or no one would miss you, remember that you are important to God, and in terms of significance, nothing trumps that. Nothing. That means that everybody matters to Him that much. Every person, whether they're sitting next to you right now, whether they're your child, whether they lived hundreds of years ago or will live 
hundreds of years from now, whether they exist here in America or of, of a different ethnicity or race or social class, or whatever the case might be, everyone is created intentionally and with purpose, and they are an image bearer of God. Which means that not only does the Lord ascribe to them immense value, but we should ascribe to one another immense value. Side note, that's why it should matter to us that there are people who live in the world that don't know the gospel. Because they are of immense value to the Lord and they were created with the intention of living in relationship with him. And the only means by which that can happen for them in an unbroken, eternal sense is if they know of Jesus Christ. That's why it should matter to us that there are people who don't know of Christ and his work on the cross. Second thing, we're most fully alive when we're living within God's will. The Westminster Catechism says the following. It's a statement of belief about Christianity. It says the following, that the chief aim of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our lives should be dedicated to glorifying the Lord in every way possible. Which means that if God created everything a specific way and we see that in the garden, we most glorify the Lord when we live according to the purpose and according to the map and plan that he laid out for us. That our lives should always point to his glory. Think about how backwards this would be. You're driving in the mountains somewhere. You're on one of those kind of windy, curvy roads up the side of a mountain, and you arrive at a spot that's got a little pull-off and a sign that says, photo stop. Really excited, you hop out of your car and take a picture of the sign. You missed the point, right? The sign was pointing you to something greater. You weren't supposed to take a picture of the sign. You were supposed to take a picture of what the sign was pointing you to. Oftentimes, we mistake the fact that we're the pinnacle of God's creation to mean that we're the purpose of God's creation. That's not true. We are the pinnacle, the high point of all that God creates, made in his image to bear his likeness, but we are not the purpose of God's creation. The purpose of God's creation is to point to his glory. We shouldn't ever think that the world needs to stop and take pictures of us. We should think that our lives point to a God that's worthy of the world stopping and taking notice of. And life goes best when we live fully within his will and point to him in that way. The last thing is this, that we're image bearers. Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That's the Trinity speaking. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make God in our image. To be made in the image or likeness of something in the original language literally refers to something that's like the original, but not identical to what it represents. Humanity is like our creator, but not identical. We bear his image in a lot of ways, but we're not completely identical. We have moral capability. No other piece of creation has that. We have creative capability. We can't create out of nothing, but we can take what he's given us and make things out of it. We have eternal spirits. 
We have logical capabilities. We have the ability to think about the future. We don't control it like God does. We can't create it like God does, but we can forecast it and plan for it and do our best to live wisely in light of it. We have a desire for relationship, just as God does. It's hardwired into who we are. Those are just the tip of the iceberg. Humanity is the culmination of all that God has created, more like Him than anything else. We're created in His image. And so you say to yourself, why does that matter? Why does any of this matter? Who cares? Let me give you the big who cares. Imagine being in the garden. Adam, Eve, everything that's existing at the moment is perfectly fulfilling its purpose to glorify the Lord. Animals, plants, landforms, the relationship between Adam and Eve, I mean, husbands and wives, imagine it in the garden, no tension. Almost incomprehensible, right? But that's the way things functioned in the garden. And next week, when we talk about and read about the fall, all of that gets broken. And the reality is that the only person who's ever lived out their God-given, image-bearing responsibility perfectly is Jesus. Jesus is the only one to live out perfect, image-bearing humanity. He lived entirely for the glory of God. He never fell short of God's command for how it is that humanity is supposed to live. He never acted in a way that stole the glory that's due to God alone. When we read in Genesis 1 and 2, we can't help but think, too bad my existence doesn't look like this. Too bad my existence doesn't look like what takes place in the garden, and it should cause us to long for everything to return to that state. It should draw our attention to the one who did live out image-bearing humanity perfectly and will one day return us to a place where garden realities are everyday eternal realities. More than anything else, the reading of the account of creation should leave us in awe. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and we're going to close our time this morning in worship. And here's why we wanted to do that. Because when we read the creation account, it should leave us in awe of the one who created everything, who has the power and wisdom and capacity to create from nothing everything we see around us. We should be left in awe of the one who freely created us in his image so that we might live in relationship with him and glorify him. When you read about creation, you should be left in awe of the one who has graciously given us far more than we did anything to merit or deserve. We should be left in awe of the one who came into the world in order to redeem us back into that kind of state. We should be left in awe of the one who's going to make everything perfect again. As we read this week, I pray, even for myself, that the creation account would leave me in awe of the creator. Who he is, who I was intended to be, and that seeing who he is, and seeing who I was intended to be, would press my heart toward a longing to live for his glory and his glory alone. That's what we see in the creation account. That's why it matters. It forms the foundation for who God is, who we're intended to be. Let's stand up and sing.